Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. Here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at Exodus 15, 16, and 17. We've got a lot of material to cover. There are four events in those chapters we want to look at. We want to learn what that event, uh, what was taking place, how God was working, how people were responding. We want to see it in its biblical context. Then we want to draw three principles, three transferable principles that will transfer from 1446 B.C. at the time of the Exodus all the way to our day and our culture and our lives today. So we're going to look at Scripture and then draw these three uh, principles, these three transferable truths. Let me set the context for our passage today. After 430 years in Egypt, the Israelites are experiencing a brand new day. They were finally free to begin a a new chapter in their journey with God. To commemorate the fresh start, you remember God even had them change their calendar. So the date of the Exodus is now the first month of their year. They had uh, been uh, delivered from Egypt through the plagues. They had walked through the the, the sea with water banked like high city walls on either side. And now this large group of, of two million people are on their way to the promised land. Now, we're going to see that after their great victory comes a what? A great test. That's the way it often happens in Scripture, and that's the way it often happens in our life, isn't it? Great victory and then a great test. They leave this area here. Remember, Israel had been here in Goshen. They'd been there for 430 years, probably about 200 years in slavery. They cross in this area. They're headed here eventually. That's the promised land. God leads them this way, and he leads them down to the desert first, the desert of Shur, and then he takes them on a southern route that we'll see later on in our passage. We saw last week that God doesn't always take us, does he, on the easiest or the shortest route. They've been traveling for about three days, and they ran out of water. Normally on that path, a caravan would take water enough for about 40 days, food and water for 40 days. But Israel, again, left in a hurry, left with little supplies, three days into it, They are thirsty. They start complaining and grumbling. They find water, but there's a problem with the water that they find. Look at chapter 15, verse 23. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Marah. Marah in Hebrew means bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Now we're going to look at the word grumble in a second. We're going to see that word a lot as we follow the the children of Israel. And it's easy for us to say, man, those grumbling, ungracious, unthankful people. But before we say that, we would have been in the same boat, wouldn't we? We would have been right there with them. When you're thirsty, you're thirsty. When you're hungry, you're hungry. And we know in our own lives, with all that God has done for us, we can grumble as well. That word grumble is an interesting word in Hebrew. It is much stronger than just to complain or protest or gripe or bellyache about something. It's used mostly of Israel's wandering in the desert, and it describes a rebellious attitude, a rebellious attitude against God. 
To grumble against God is to question his abilities, to question his power, to question even his motives. Why are you doing this? It's akin to a no-confidence vote. God, we are giving you a vote of no confidence. We have no idea what you're doing and why you're doing this. Now, Moses understood the need of water as well. In fact, he's the leader. He carries the responsibility, humanly speaking, of supplying water for the people. But notice, instead of grumbling, instead of protesting, instead of, instead of rebelling against God, notice what Moses does in chapter 15, verse 25. Then Moses cried out to the Lord. We see that pattern throughout Exodus. The people grumble. Moses cried out. Well, there are two options we have, isn't it? Aren't they? We can grumble. We can protest God for our situation. We can protest God for our uh, uh, circumstance that, that, that we're in. Or we can cry out to him. We're either crying out in protest or we're crying out, God, I need your help. Can't do this without you. I, I need you to provide what I need. In contrast to grumbling, Moses cried out. Moses was uh, told to take um, a piece of wood and throw it in the water. The wood seems to have no significance other than Moses is doing this by an act of faith and the people are seeing something, something tangible going in the water in, uh, in response to God's direction. And the water becomes sweet and they're able to drink the water. And God uses this incident early on, three days in the journey. He uses this incident to explain his way of doing things. Following him meant playing by his rules. He says, here's the way it's going to be in our journey together. Look at verse 26. He said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God. So you got to listen. And then you do what's right in his eyes. If you pay attention to his commands and keep his decrees... I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Now, that's an interesting verse, and some believers have ripped that verse out of its context, and they have said, if you are a believer, if you are following God, if you're doing what God wants you to do, then you won't get sick. If you do get sick, then he will heal you. That's not what this verse is saying. This verse is telling the Israelites, if you follow me, if you obey me, if you trust me, if you place your faith in me, I'm going to take care of you. And I won't bring on you the same plagues. Maybe God was talking about the plagues in general. Maybe he was talking about specifically the personal plague of, of the boils that broke out on the people. I won't bring these plagues on you like I did the Egyptians. Here's what you have to do, Israel. When you follow me, you don't have to worry about those awful plagues that you saw with the Egyptians. And there's a tangible experience of God's gracious provision. About seven miles from Mara, they come to a place where there is just all kinds of water and palm trees. Look at verse uh, 27. They came to Elam where there are 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camp there. Again, a demonstration of God's provision. Over in chapter 17, they need water again. This time, 
God has Moses take the staff and strike a rock, and water comes from the rock. In both of those instances, here's the, here's the point we see. God always provides exactly what we need just when we need it. you believe that? God will always provide, not always what we want, but God will provide exactly what we need just when we need it. Whatever you're going through, however impossible your situation seems, however desperate you feel this morning, I can promise you from God's word that God will give you what you need right when you need it. You can always trust him. Remember the Israelites left Egypt with, uh, with little, and their food now has run out. They didn't have water, now they don't have food. They're about a month into their journey. They've been traveling for a month. It's a long time. Now, it's going to travel for 40 years. It's a longer time. But think about that. A month making their way through a desert area, hot, dry, barren, dusty area. And after a month, they get hungry. Look at verse 3. The Israelites said to Moses and Aaron, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Notice the exclamation mark. There we set around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Now, they were slaves, so they probably didn't eat all the food they wanted. But we romanticize the past, don't we? But you brought us out here in the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So check out what God does. Here he provides, again, exactly what they need, exactly when they need it. Look at verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them, and I'm going to see whether they will follow my instructions. I'm going to test them. We'll come back to that in a little bit. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So God gives the instruction. I'm going to rain down bread from heaven. I'm going to rain down food from heaven. They are, they are to get provisions for every day, just enough for that day. And then on the sixth day, they get twice as much because I'm not going to send any on the Sabbath. We'll talk about the Sabbath more as we go through Exodus. That day, they're to get twice as much. And as God, as Moses and Aaron are relaying this to the Israelites, God shows up in an in a, in a, in a, in, in experiential way, in a, in a tangible way. Look at verse 10. So Aaron's telling them what's going to happen. And as he's speaking to the whole Israelite community, he's speaking to all of them, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of God appearing in the cloud. Let's just think about that for a second. The the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire was always with them, had been with them for a month. So that was nothing new. But something was happening in that cloud that was different. That was majestic. Maybe it was a fiery brilliance 
or maybe it was a, a billowing cloud or both. We don't, we don't know what was happening, but, but something was happening that got their attention. Maybe a sound came with it as they're, as they're listening to Aaron. All of a sudden they hear something else, the sound over here, but they see the, the glory of God. And again, we don't, we don't know exactly what that would look like. We just know for them, it was, it was they, they sensed, they experienced God's greatness. They, they felt his fear, his, 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 his reverence. They were in amazement at who he was. They realized that they were in the, in the presence of, of the eternal God, the eternal authority who had their back, who was guiding them, who was with them. He was worthy of their worship and adoration. While God can't be seen, his glory can be sensed and recognized and felt. And so the question for us is, when's the last time we, we felt that? When's the last time we recognized that? When's the last time we, we, we really sensed that, that, that intimacy we have with the living God? That always happened in a worship service. In fact, I'd say seldom it happens in a worship service. Most of the time it's in our personal worship. And some of the times it's when we least expect it. But God reminds us, hey, I am your God. I am with you. I'll give you everything you need. And he allows us to experience him. We don't see him. We don't even hear his voice. There's something that comes over, a warmth of his presence that comes over us. When's the last time you experienced that? Look at chapter um, 16, verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you'll eat meat, in the morning you'll be filled with bread. Then you'll know that I am the Lord your God. So that night... God sent them meat to eat. He sent them quail. He just did that one time. Later on, when they complained about the manna, he sends quail again, but that's another story. This time, he just sends a quail for that night. But in the morning, they go out, and they see this substance on the ground. Look at verse 15. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? Uh, In Hebrew, you know what the word for what is it is? Two words. Mana. Manna. That's how we get the word. It's, it's amazing to me. This, this miraculous thing that God does, he just lets it be called, what is it? Manna. <laughs> and so they see it, and they are to get it every day. Now, just think about that. Just enough for that day. So you go out on Monday, and you get enough for Monday. And then you wonder, is God going to provide it for Tuesday? Yeah, I can depend on him. And then you go out Tuesday, and it's there again. And you just get enough for Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday every day. Then on, this, on the sixth day, you get twice as much because God's going to provide it for the next day. Everyone didn't listen. We see that some people got a bunch, and when they woke up in the morning, it was full of maggots and spoiled and stunk. And then some people on the, before the Sabbath, they went out and they tried to go out on the Sabbath and get some. And God said, don't you people listen to me. He gave you the instruction. Now, here's the thing about manna, four things about manna. First of all, it was a supernatural provision. 
There was nothing ordinary about it. Psalm 78, it's called, it's called the food of angels. The manna was a daily provision. Uh, six days, every day it came, and then a double portion on the sixth day so they could have it on the side. Manna was a sufficient provision. Two million people. And all of them had everything they wanted. This little, this, they could bake it or they could boil it, this wafer that, 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 was, that tasted like honey. And manna was a constant provision. Look, look at chapter 16, verse 35. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna, uh, uh, sorry, verse 35. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to the land that was settled. And they ate the man until they reached the border of Canaan. So in, in, until they started eating the, the fruit of Canaan, God provided this manna every day for them. And God didn't want them to forget. Look at verse 32. Moses says, this is what the Lord commanded. Take an omer. An omer was about two or three pounds. We don't know exactly. An omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so that they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. We're told later that the, um, in Hebrews, we're told that it was a gold jar that the manna was put in, and the jar and Aaron's staff and the laws of the covenant were all put in the Ark of the Covenant. So there the people could remember, God always provides. There's the manna that he gave our ancestors when they were in there for 40 years. He provided them everything they needed. And if he provided for them there, he can provide for us as well. Now, uh, food and water was not the only issue that uh, Israel faced in the, in the desert. Look at chapter 17, verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. The Amalekites were nomads who lived in the, in the desert south of Canaan. They were actually descendants of Esau. Remember Esau, who in our studies of Genesis, Isaac had two sons. He had twins, Esau and Jacob. And uh, Esau is Jacob's uh, twin brother. And these Amalekites are descendants, we see, of Esau. They made their living by raiding uh, other people. Uh, by some accounts, I read the Amalekites were the first ones to master uh, camels uh, to, to use in, in, in attack. And they could, they could just, they swooped down on people and they would attack them. And they saw these two million Israelites who had been slaves taking these, these cumbersome carts through the desert, loaded down with the plunder uh, of Egypt. And they said, man, here's some easy pickings. Let's just go after them. So they're getting ready to attack. Moses tells Joshua, first time we hear about Joshua, pick some people to fight. Pick some men to fight. Now, we, there's no army. They left with, with, with no weapons at that point. But pick some people to fight. And so Joseph, he goes out, and he gets an army together. But here's what Moses says. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's going to be the game changer. Look at verse 10, chapter 17. So Joseph fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses and Aaron went on top of the hill. As long as Moses held in his hand, up his hands, the Israelite were winning. Remember what, what was in his hand? The staff of God. He said, I'm going to go on a hill. I'm going to hold up the staff of God. 
will hold it above my hand. He is supreme over us. He's the one who will bring the victory. And as long as he was holding it up, they were winning. But whenever he lowered his, whenever he got tired and he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they, they took a stone and they, and they put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Ur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joseph overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. I love that word steady. It, it means, it, mean, it comes from the word that means faithful. His hands remain steady. They were firm, reliable, dependable. And it kind of has a double meaning here. Not only were Abraham's hands steady and firm and reliable, but Abraham himself. Well, not Abraham. Moses. It's a different story. Moses. How long have I been saying Abraham? The whole time? This is about Moses. Moses had his hands up in the air. Do we need to start all over on this? <laughs> so as long as Moses kept his hands up, faithful and steady. Now, a lot of people love the story, and it's a great story, and they, and they jump right to Aaron and Ur holding up Moses' hands. And there's a great principle to that. We need to hold up each other's hands. But that's not, that is not the main part of the story. The main part of the story is God's staff is in the air. God is supreme over his people. God is the one who brings the victory. We can have everybody holding up each other's hands, but unless God is there, it doesn't matter. God is the one who brings the victory. Look at chapter 17, verse 15. Moses built an altar, and he called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, for hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord is my banner. In Hebrew, Yahweh Nisi. We'll come back to that in just a second. All right. In our remaining time, here's what I want to do. Three lessons uh, from, from, this, from these stories. Now, the, 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 the topic, the subject, the point, main point of this story is God provides and protects, right? If we were just going to put a title above this section, God provides and protects. He provided food. He provided water. He protected them from the Amalekites. God provides and protects, and we know that in our lives. God is the one who provides for us. Our relationship with him, our daily food. He's the one who gives us everything we need to do what he's calling us to do. So that's the main point of the story. God provides and protects. Let me draw something else out that, that just hit me as I was studying this. Here's the, here's the first point. When you look at the story, you just see that we, the Israelites, we today, we are in constant need of fresh faith, aren't we? Fresh faith. When I see the Israelites complaining and grumbling I just, I just can't think those faithless, thankless Israelites. I can, I can relate to that. I can relate to that because I do that. Whatever God did yesterday is like in the rearview mirror. God, what are you going to do for me today? We are in constant need of fresh faith. And God graciously allows 
us to have it if we follow him. Israel experienced God's power in the plagues, but they needed a fresh faith experience when they faced the Red Sea, right? It's an impossible situation. They're hemmed in. Egyptians coming. They cried out to God. God gave them, open the sea for them. So they knew that God opened the sea for them, but now three days in, they don't have anything to drink. And so God provides them water, a fresh faith experience he always provides. And then they got the water, but they run out of food. And so God provides them food, fresh faith experience. In fact, every day with the manna was a time of fresh faith. God, you did it again. You did it again. See, see, no matter how powerful yesterday's experience with God was, it dulls over time. Certainly what God has done in the past becomes building blocks for our faith. But the, but the problem with the present is this. Tomorrow it becomes the what? We'll try that again. The problem is... Today is the present, but tomorrow it becomes the past. And we need another dose. You can't live on yesterday's manna. You can't live on yesterday's experience. Yeah, it's a building block, but you need a dose of fresh faith. Now, sure, there's basic ingredients in that. There's being in the Word every day and then worship. And we call them the five essentials, connect and serve and share But along with those basic ingredients, God gives us daily opportunities to follow him, to make decisions. We're we're either going to grumble or we're going to cry out. We're either going to trust you or we're going to trust ourselves. We're either going to trust you or we're going to trust other people. Look at uh, chapter 16, verse 4 again. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough food for that day in this way, in that daily going out and getting the food, in this way, I will what? I will test them to see whether they will follow my instructions. God still does that. We have, we have in front of us opportunity to obey or disobey. That's the test. We're going to follow him or not. Now, a lot of times we think of a test as something big, right? I lose my job, that's a test. It is. Uh, I have a a marriage goes south, that's a test. Yes, it is. Um, An illness comes, that's a test, for sure. So in the big things, for sure. But don't miss the little things. Daily opportunities of obedience or not. So teenagers, we know your hormones are exploding. It's been a while, but we were there. (laughs) Sex is tempting. Test is before you. Will you obey God and get that fresh faith? Or will you follow your own desires? Young adults, sexual purity and marrying another believer is clearly God's plan. 
The test is before you. Will you renew your faith of obedience every day? It doesn't matter if you obey him for, for three years and then you're four, say, forget it, God, I'm tired of waiting. It's daily obedience. Marriage is hard. And the easy path is to call it quits. Test us before you. Will you do it God's way or not? Fresh faith. Now, I want to make clear something here when we talk about fresh faith. <clears throat> there, are, there are two types of faith, okay? First of all, there is saving faith, right? You guys read that? I've been told not a lot of people can read my writing, but that says saving faith. And saving faith is a one-time for all-time event. Saving faith is when we come to the point in our life, God brings us to the point in our life, when we realize we're a sinner, we can't save ourselves, our church attendance, our giving, our confirmation, uh, you know, all, this, all the stuff we do uh, uh, in, in uh, church uh, in our church, personal church history, that does not make us a Christian. Our parents are Christians. That doesn't make us a Christian. We come to the point when we realize that we're a sinner, we're in need of a Savior. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We trust in him as the only way, not a good way or one of many ways, but the only way we can have a relationship with the living God. That's saving faith. So just think about that. That's one time for all time. We trust in him. Saving faith occurs in our life one time for all time. We're a child of God and will forever be. But there's also, after that, daily faith. Right? Saving faith's one time for all time. Daily faith is that uh, we like to draw, you know, until we get to heaven. Daily faith happens through here. That's trusting God when we're faced with obedience or disobedience. God, I am tempted to do what's wrong. I need your help. Help me do what's right. I can't do it unless you give me the strength to do that. I trust you. I lost a job. You gave me that job, but you've taken it away. I still trust you. Illness comes, marriage situation, a challenge with kids, whatever it is. We come to that point where we trust God or not. And I believe, we, I believe we've got to make certain as believers we're living with fresh faith. A dull faith does not allow us to follow hard after Christ. Fresh faith comes from him. Will you trust him every day? Just like you had to go out and get that manna every day. Trust him with fresh faith. Second lesson. <clears throat> Turn to John chapter 6. Real event happened in the Old Testament. The manna from heaven, 40 years. And then Jesus uses this event to explain why he came and explain what he provides for us. He takes the physical and turns it into the spiritual. Look at verse uh, 30 of chapter 6. 
So uh, he's interacting with uh, some people. They ask him, what miraculous sign then will you give uh, will you give that we may see it and believe you? What, w- what will you do? Our forefathers, they ate manna in the desert. That's a miraculous sign that God gave our forefathers. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said this. Look at verse 32. I tell you the truth. It, it, it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. It wasn't your forefathers, but it was my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am, Jesus says, the bread of God. I am the one who came down from heaven. Look at verse 48. I am the bread of life, Jesus said. Your forefathers ate manna in the desert, yet they died. It helped them every day, but they're not here anymore. They died. But here... Standing here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and what? Not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live, what? Forever. The bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So Jesus takes this uh, Exodus 16 event and says, I'm the true bread. I'm not just the manna. I am the living bread. And if you trust in me, I'm going to give my flesh. I'm going to put my body on the cross for you. I'm going to die a death for you. I'm going to shed my blood for you. And if you partake of that, if you trust in that, that act that I died on the cross for your sin, then you will never die. And like the man of the Old Testament, Jesus is our supernatural provision. He is our daily provision. He is our sufficient provision. He is our constant provision all the way to heaven. Have you, have you done that? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone as the living bread? One more point. Look at chapter, uh, back to Exodus, chapter 17, verse 15. Moses built an altar, and he called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, for hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord is my banner. What what does that mean? Well, in the ancient world, armies carried big banners made of wood or metal. Uh, The name of the country or a, a rallying cry would be on that big banner. They always carried it. It's high above. Just like Moses held up the staff, the banner was high, carried into battle. The, the banner was the army's identifying mark. They knew that was their mark. So they are in a battle, hand to hand most of the time in those days, right? They're in a battle. I just can't even imagine that. But uh, when you think of those battles, it had to get confusing. You wouldn't know friend or foe after a while. And it would be dusty and, and, and bloody and you'd be exhausted and you've turned around to fight and you don't know which way is north or south or east or west. So what do you look for? Look for the banner. That's the rallying point. The banner is, 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 the, is the place you go to to regroup. The, the banner is the place you return to for instructions. You always look for the banner. 
Your eyes are always looking toward the banner. And Moses says, what? The Lord is my banner. He's my rallying point. That's what, that's our lesson for us. Jesus is our rallying point. Today, you may, be, you, may, you may feel lost in the heat of your own battle. You're confused. You are worn out. Talk to so many Christians today who say, I'm just tired. I'm worn down. Maybe you're spiritually disoriented. You don't know spiritually which way is north or south or east or west. And sometimes in the heat of the battle, you can't distinguish friend from foe, can you? Maybe you have left the battle altogether. You've deserted. You've wandered off on your own. Being alone is a dangerous place, isn't it? Today, it's time to come back home. It's time to look up and find the rallying point. Jesus, the person of Jesus. It's time to come back to him. And coming back to him means listen to what he says. And doing what he says. And worshiping him. And loving him. And representing him. In this world. With the fresh faith that he desires. Jesus is our rallying point. He's our banner. Here's what I want you to do. In the time we have left. At the end of the aisles there are some cards. I'd ask whoever's sitting on the end to take those cards. And pass them down. I don't know what, where you are in, in, in your life, many of you. I don't know what, I don't know what test uh, God has in front of you. Maybe it's a, it's a test of obedience, a, a, a nagging temptation. It just seems to be dragging you down. Maybe it's a, an illness. Maybe it's a job situation. Maybe it's a relationship situation. Maybe it's a child situation. Maybe it's a parent situation. I don't know what your situation is. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. On that card, I'd ask you to write one of three things. One, Lord, I just need a dose of fresh faith. I, I'm, I, am, I, am, I am living on, on dull, stale faith. I, I'm a Christian. I have no doubt about that. I, I, I got the saving faith. But I need fresh faith. I need renewed. I need re-energized. Or you may say, I've never trusted in Christ. I'm coming back today. I, I want to trust in Christ. My living bread, the one if I partake of, I trust in him, I, I live forever. God's working in my heart. He has been for a while. I'm, gonna, I'm coming home, I'm coming to Christ. Or maybe you say, you know what? I'm, I'm, I've been in the battle and I'm a little disoriented and I'm a little confused and I'm tired and I'm worn out. I just need to get back to Christ. I need to get back to the rallying point. I got to return and regroup and get the instructions I need. Jesus, Lord, I'm returning to you as my rallying point. Write that down on the card. And here's what I'd ask you to do. Kirk's going to come. Kirk is here, and he's going to play for us here. Uh, other uh, worship leaders and other, other campuses, and you guys can take it from here. But I'm going to ask you to write one of those things, whatever God is calling you to do. And then you can do one of two things. You can drop it off by the cross as many have done in the other services and and by doing that you're saying I'm coming back I'm I'm coming to Christ I'm I, I need that fresh faith it's, it's a it's a tangible way to demonstrate that or you may say you know what I'm going to put it in my Bible because I want to remember every day I want to remember every day that I'm 
I need that fresh faith. I, I need that rallying point. It's up to you. You do what you will. This is your time.